Well, there are some times in our life when we need a wake-up call. <laughs> and sometimes when we get one, I know a man close to me who had an unexpected heart attack in his early 50s, and that became his wake-up call to lose weight, to exercise, and to begin eating a healthier diet. I know a woman whose weight had become so great that her health had deteriorated in lots of different ways. High blood pressure she suffered from. She even had difficulty walking, and she had diabetes. Her doctor said if she didn't lose weight, she probably wouldn't live to hold her grandchildren. And so she had laparoscopic surgery, and she got healthy. And on another note, not a health note, I remember in my own life, back when I was dating my wife, Marge, in our college days, back then I used to run late for everything. I don't know why. I just didn't have the discipline in that area to get myself ready to plan ahead on time to get somewhere on time. And so after being late one too many times for a date with her, she gave me an ultimatum. She said, if you want to keep dating me, you're going to start showing up on time. And I did want to keep dating. <laughs> I did want to keep dating her, and so I did start showing up on time. That was my wake-up call. I changed right away. We kept dating, and of course, 37 years of marriage later, the rest is history. I'm thankful for that wake-up call. Sometimes we need a wake-up call, too. We get a little too comfortable and complacent. Paul writes these words in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise but is wise. Sometimes we even need to be awakened from our spiritual slumber. And so today we're beginning a seven-week series throughout the season of Epiphany that's called Wake Up. And it's based on a research study conducted by the Barna Institute in 2011 in which 15,000 people were surveyed over a six-year period in order to better understand how Christians grow in their spiritual lives. And they noticed that there are 10 stops on the journey towards spiritual maturity and transformation. You saw this briefly in the video. That first stop is the unawareness of sin. Number two is indifference to sin. The third stop is becoming worried about sin. Number four is finding forgiveness for sin. Five is becoming active in a church and in activities at that church. Number six is holy discontent. In other words, a desire for more of God. Seven is being broken by God. Number eight is choosing to surrender and submit fully to God. Nine is enjoying a profound love of God. And number 10 is experiencing a profound love for people. Most Americans never get past the third stop, worrying about sin. We worry about it, but then we never do anything about it. We don't take that next step toward dealing with it. But perhaps even more concerning 
this research found that most people in the church today stop progressing in their spiritual journey after they ask Jesus to be their savior and then they commit to faith activities. In essence, they just go the first half of the gospel, which is summarized by the word justification or being made right with God, but not on the second half of the gospel, which we call sanctification. They make a decision to believe in Jesus and then they go about busying themselves in church activities. But they don't become from the inside out real disciples of Jesus. They don't understand that salvation isn't the same thing as transformation. And so we confuse church activities with being a growing disciple who follows Jesus. And it's usually pastors, myself included, who are often to blame. But my friends, God has so much more in store for us. We miss out on the fullness of the spirit-filled life if we don't keep growing. We're really good at setting financial goals or career goals or health goals, but we're not so good at setting goals for our spiritual development. And what we all need is to be awakened to God's presence in our lives and his purposes for our times. Without a personal awakening, we will not be able to be agents of that awakening for other people, making a difference that is so desperately needed in our world today. So what is the second half of the gospel? As I said, the first half of the gospel is characterized by our justification. We become aware that we are sinners and that we need a savior and we profess our faith in Christ and his work on the cross and we experience the assurance that our sins are forgiven. We receive baptism, we join a church, we get involved in church activities and that's as far as many Christians go. In fact, as you heard, 89% of all Christians stop here. We work so hard at getting people in the door of the church and then we fail to take them deep into a growing relationship and into sanctification. That's what the second half of the gospel is. It's characterized by sanctification. Now, hopefully that's not a new word for you since we spent a lot of time last year in 2020 teaching about sanctification. Sanctification begins with a holy discontent about the way life is. It's a desire to go deeper, to experience transformation, to find freedom from the lies that we have come to believe, to unravel our false selves and to put on the new self offered by God to us in Christ. It's to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So how do we move in the second half of the gospel? That's what we're going to be covering these next six weeks together. Listen to Jesus' words from Mark's gospel in chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple 
must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. You see, Jesus was walking with his disciples near the village of Caesarea Philippi. And along the way, he asked them a question. He says, who is everyone saying that I am? And they answered, well, some say that you're John the Baptist who's come back to life. And other people say that you're Elijah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus goes a little bit deeper and he asks them, yes, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is probably thinking to himself, at last, finally, my disciples are beginning to understand what I'm all about. And so he starts to prepare them what is soon to begin happening in Jerusalem. That he will go there and suffer many things. That he'll be rejected by the religious authorities and then be crucified. And Peter is taken aback. He's astonished. He's beside himself. He had just stated his belief that Jesus was the Christ. He believed like so many other people in his day that the Messiah was going to come in power and glory and with an army to drive out the Roman occupying legions and to reestablish the throne of David. And so Jesus takes... So Peter takes Jesus aside... And he begins to correct him. He says, Jesus, you, you have a pretty negative attitude here. No one is going to kill you. You're not going to Jerusalem to die. You're going to Jerusalem to reign. Well, Jesus thought they were getting it. But maybe not. And so he gathers them around again. And he begins to teach them. He says what his mission is and how they will join him. He says these words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. In this passage, Jesus gives you and me the roadmap to the second half of the gospel. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. You see, to go deeper, we have to go down. So what exactly does this mean? Deny yourself. You know, when you think about it, self-denial was the lifestyle of our Lord. It's obvious that with his temptation in the wilderness that began his ministry, all the way to its climax in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, thy will be done, that Jesus lived a lifestyle of self-denial. 
I think throughout the centuries, we have often made the mistake that self-denial is purposely not doing something we like to do, like giving up chocolate or some other favorite treat. Way back in the day, about 1,500 years ago, there was a man named Simeon the Stylite who was a monk. He tried to deny himself, as was kind of popular at that time, by doing really strange and ascetic kinds of things. He buried himself in the sand up to his chin in the hot desert for 30 days. And then he thought, well, that wasn't enough. It didn't accomplish my purpose. And so he moved to the top of a 60-foot pillar where he lived on a platform for 30 years attempting self-denial. Catherine of Genoa slept on a bed of thorns and she would put pebbles in her shoes to deny her fleshly desires. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. Some people think giving up a bad habit like smoking or drinking or overeating is self-denial. But that's just common sense. Self-denial is not just making sacrifices. It is a radical reorientation of life. It means that we say no to self and yes to God. That is to say we abandon self-trust, self-assertion, and self-centeredness. We abandon self as the ruling and determining element in us. And we say yes to God, to love our neighbors, to bear one another's burdens, and to become servants instead of taskmasters. Our care is to will God's care, or our care is to will God's will, and his care is to give all things to us. It's a turning from self-sufficiency to God-sufficiency. To say yes to God's will rather than our own may result in losing our life, but then discovering that we can only truly live when we lose our life. Does that make sense? It really doesn't, does it? It's countercultural. It's meant to be. But hang on. Second, Jesus invites us to take up the cross. And what does this mean? I'm sure that when his disciples first heard those words, it left them trembling, scared, breathless. Because in their minds, the cross was an instrument of torture and death. It was the form of capital punishment of that day. The Romans used the cross to strike fear into hearts of those who saw people hanging on a cross, to scare them into quiet submission to the Roman authority. Over the years, we've come to spiritualize the cross to mean a burden. To take up our cross is to live with some difficult situation. Peter Cartwright was a rugged frontier circuit rider who preached in Kentucky and Indiana and Ohio back in the early 1800s. And he writes and tells about the story of a man and his wife who were converted at a Methodist camp meeting one night. Later, as Cartwright was riding his horse down the road, he spied the couple up ahead, the man carrying his wife upon his back. And thinking that the woman was probably injured, 
the preacher sought to help the man since he was kind of a small and wiry man and his wife was kind of large and heavy. And so he rode up to them and he asked what the matter was. And the man replied, Sir, you told us in your sermon that we must take up the cross and follow the Savior or we could not be saved or get to heaven. And I desire to go to heaven as much as anybody. And this wife of mine, she is so bad. She scolds and scolds me all the time. And this woman is the greatest cross I have in the whole world. And so I must take her up and bear her to save my soul. <laughs> well, Cartwright was kind of taken aback for a moment by the man's comments. And so he dismounted his horse and he explained to the confused couple just what it means to take up the cross. I can tell you it doesn't mean carrying your nagging wife or your nagging husband on your back. So where does this idea come from? It comes from the belief that God is up in heaven just dishing out suffering to us. You know, you're going through your life, minding your own business, things are going pretty well, God sees they're going too smoothly, and so he lets you have it. If any one of you believe this, I have good news for you. It's not true. God doesn't work that way. You see, a burden is something you have to carry. There's no way out of it. But the cross is voluntary. You can choose to pick it up. You can choose to lay it down. And so what does it mean to carry your cross? It means to die to self. To face the very thing we fear. And then to risk new life. Take up your cross, Jesus says, and embrace my plan for your life. Take up your cross is what Abraham and Sarah did, 99 years old and childless, promised by God that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And now they're being sent off to a new home. But before they could go, he and Sarah had to let go of their fears, fears of what awaited them, fear of being, of looking like fools, fears of deep, deep disappointment. They had to let go of those fears before they could even take the first step. Take up your cross, Jesus says to us, inviting us to discover in ways large and small that hope and new life emerge when we surrender to him. Take up your cross, Jesus says, inviting us to name what fears in our lives hold us back. Inviting us to step out in faith. Inviting us to take up our cross and follow Jesus beyond a place where fear holds sway to a life fully lived. A life raised from its deadness to walk boldly with Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian who was put to death by Hitler, put it this way. He wrote, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. And thus it begins 
The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Take up your cross, Jesus says, and die to your old self and live. Follow me. A lot of us here have made the decision to follow Christ. But Jesus is not asking us to just make a single momentary decision to follow. It is a lifelong commitment made many, many times over as we come to a crossroads where we have to decide whether we will follow Christ or the world. Eugene Peterson's translation of this verse reveals the constant nature of this call to follow. He says, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. As the old saying goes, if Christ is your co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat. You see, when Jesus approached Peter and Andrew, he said to them, follow me. And they did just that. They dropped their nets and they followed him. And for three years they followed him through joys and sorrows, ups and downs. And yet when you skip to the end of the story, do you know what the last words Jesus says to Peter are? Follow me. You see, our decision to follow Christ is continuous. He continues every day to extend the invitation to us, and we have to continue to accept that invitation. Lord, today I will follow you. But notice that Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me. You see, Jesus doesn't demand that we follow him. The rich young ruler wanted to be saved, he was a good man, honest, upright, moral. He probably went to synagogue every Saturday. But he was not willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. He clung too much to his wealth because the thought of giving it up was just too much for him, too painful, too scary. And so he declined the Lord's invitation. Jesus never demands that we follow him. But if we do... We have to lay aside all of those things that are clamoring to be first in our lives. I want to leave you with this thought. The writer of the book of Hebrews writes, Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Joy. Deep, sustaining drafts of joy is what is offered to those who take up their cross and follow. There is nothing that can bring more joy and freedom than following Jesus. And those who seek security in this world and in their own life end up losing that one thing that makes life ultimately significant. But... In losing our lives to Christ, we will find life more real, more complete, more lifelike than our wildest hope or imagination. 
It's like if you grew up eating hot dogs all your life and you were just happy and content with that. And then one day you get invited by someone and they take you to Jeff Ruby's Steakhouse and you have your very first filet in your whole life and it melts in your mouth and you suddenly realize what you've been missing your whole life and from that moment on you know a hot dog is never going to do it for you. It is never going to satisfy you again. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus challenges us. My friends, are you ready to wake up? Do you want to move to the next stop in your spiritual life? Ask yourself, what is holding me back? Are there times when you thought you would like to go deeper, but you wonder if it's going to cost you too much? I have. And the truth is, it does cost much, everything. If you were ready to begin the second half of the gospel, I invite you to pray with me now. Father God, I acknowledge to you that you are worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. Today, I willingly surrender every area of my life to your will. Thank you for the forgiveness and righteousness that has been given to me as your child. Thank you for your protection and your provision daily. I know that your love for me never ends. I rejoice in your victory, Lord, over all the principalities and powers in the heavenly realm. And in faith, I stand in your victory and commit myself to live obedient to you, my King. But I desire that my fellowship with you becomes greater. So reveal to me those things that stand in the way of going deeper with you. I need the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin, repentance of heart, to strengthen my faith and increase my perseverance in resisting every kind of temptation. Help me to die to self and walk as a new creation. Let the fruits of the Spirit flow out of my life so that you will be glorified. Help me see the lies that I believe in my thoughts and emotions. Enable me to stand upon your word and resist all the accusations, all the distortions, all the condemnations that may be hurled against me by the enemy. For it is my desire to be transformed through the renewing of my mind so that I can be obedient to your will. And so today I surrender myself to you completely, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.